Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Seven Engineering Vibe Podcast. Now in this podcast, me and Dr. Ghanem Kashwani, we like to speak about different topics. And topics like what we want, for example, startup, entrepreneurship, new trend, mental health and career and self-improvement and self-engineering and sometimes another thinking major. We like also to interview other people from other fields. So we like to get the expertise on how they can benefit us and benefit society. So let us jump to the episode and thank you guys and wishing you the best. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good afternoon, good evening from where you are. In this episode, we speak with Mr. Storm Cunningham. He's an author, keynote, publisher, and advisor. His to- most of his topic is two decision maker and policy maker, actually, in policy and sustainability. Actually, he told us in the podcast that how he became and how he joined and how he want to rejuvenate. Rev- existing areas or existing structure and existing existing landfill and how to make it more sustainable and can have more economic. For example, there are many currently existing areas we can be renovated and we can be economically beneficial. He also is the author of three books, Restoration Economy, Rewards and Economics. Also he has a TEDx talk and he has a journal called Economic Journal. Link will be in the show notes. So if you want to talk more, jump to the episode and listen to him. Thank you. So good afternoon. How are you, Mr. Storm? Uh, wonderful. Actually, just call me Storm. You don't need the mister. And uh, great to uh, be on your show, Abdul Rahman. Yeah, I hope you're doing great. So can you introduce some more about yourself, Mr. Storm? There you go with mister again. Um, <laughs> what to do? <laughs> uh, so um, I mostly focused uh, on natural resource issues for most of my life. And uh, uh, I've been a lifelong scuba diver. And back in the late 80s, I got invited by a German scientist who was working in Jamaica, uh, who needed some volunteers, uh, scuba divers, to help him install some new technology that was going to uh, restore the coral reefs in Jamaica. And I went down and spent a hour, uh, spent a week with him and saw these dead and destroyed coral reefs coming back to life very quickly. And that's uh, that's what suddenly woke me up to the fact that we can actually restore the world. We don't just have to be satisfied with slowing down the rate of destruction, which is what most sustainability stuff does. So uh, after that, I, I wrote a book about restoration called The Restoration Economy. It came out in 2002. And I've written two more books. Uh, the most recent one was called Reconomics, just came out last year, uh, focusing on how to revitalize communities and restore natural resources. Well, fantastic. Actually, to be honest, I go through most of your book, the three books, like the restoration and the other work with the three wells and the economic. So like, give you back more about restoration. Can you talk about it more? Well, in the first book, uh, I broke the restoration uh activities or restorative development, I usually call it. Uh, I broke it down into eight categories, uh, kind of a taxonomy of the restoration economy. So four of those categories were on the natural side, uh, watershed restoration, agricultural restoration, fisheries restoration, and ecological restoration. And four of them were on the built environment side, you know, infrastructure, heritage structures, disaster and war reconstruction, and brownfields redevelopment. And uh, so 
you know, each of those is a huge, huge industry, multi-billion dollars. I mean, there are individual projects like in the States, we have the Everglades restoration, restoring the Everglades ecosystem, which is about $12 billion all by itself. And, uh, but all of these eight sectors are, are growing very quickly. And, uh, it's, you know, I'm, fisheries are 10% of the entire world economy. So restoring fisheries is not a small thing economically. Uh, how you define it from your concept, resilience? You know, in, in, in infrastructure and civil engineering, we have a different uh, definition for resilience. So what do you think about resilience from economic aspect and from you, uh, your point of view? How you define resilience? And do you believe in this statement that resilience is the new sustainability? All right, good questions. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. There are many different uh, ways of using the word resilience. You can talk about a resilient person, somebody who can survive some sort of tragedy or disaster in their personal life and uh, come back strongly. You can talk about social resistance where uh, an entire community can be uh, subjected to some kind of disaster and uh, still maintain their social cohesiveness, you know, and not fall apart and, you know, and not start killing each other. Um, you can talk about environmental uh, resilience where uh, you're like on a coastal area where your ecosystems and your dunes can withstand hurricanes and typhoons. Uh, you can talk about economic resilience uh, where uh, you can a city can lose a major employer and uh, still manage to find a way to rebuild their economy and come back. So they all have the same basic characteristics in common in terms of their ability to withstand stress stressors and uh, and uh, come back strongly, uh, not always in the same shape. You know, sometimes they have to come back in a very different form or a different function in order to, uh, you know, retain their, their vibrancy. Uh, but uh, creating resilience, uh, you know, there are some commonalities too. It doesn't really matter whether it's economic or social or environmental uh, or infrastructure. Uh, you know, one of the commonalities is redundancy. You know, these days, um, many places are so, uh, they're, they're so focused on efficiency and trying to get the most for the dollar that they eliminate redundancy. And uh, that it, that'll look good on the bottom line. They can reduce their expenses that way, uh, but it greatly reduces their resilience when they don't have backup systems in place. Do you think that um, costing is one of the aspects that people compromise in resilience? And you mentioned about in your book about the natural resource utilization, and many people, they, they compromise the healthy uh, utilization of these natural resources and to to provide uh, healthy resilience. So, in terms of the initial capital cost, they try to save, and I think this is what you try to deliver your message through your book that uh, people maybe misuse this concept in the beginning. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities for efficiencies related to cost uh, that people aren't taking advantage of, and a lot of it gets back to the same reason that so many of their resilience and revitalization efforts fail. Uh, you know, in actual fact, something like 90% of all resilience and revitalization initiatives fail, not necessarily in whole, although some of them do fail completely, uh, but uh, they fail to reach their major objectives. And the reason for that is that revitalization and resilience are 
emergent properties of a complex system, uh, a complex society, a complex environmental, ecological system, a complex economy. And too many places try to make themselves more resilient or more revitalized on a project-by-project basis, you know, bits and pieces. They focus on fixing this uh, bit of infrastructure here or that watershed there or renewing that building there. Uh, And complex living adaptive systems need to be treated as such. You can't treat them like an automobile engine where you can just yank out a starter motor and stick in a new one. So one of the things that requires is an ongoing program. You have to get out of the project by project uh, mode and go from project management to program management. You know, and program, if I'm sure you're familiar, you know, if you study the, the books of, you know, like the Project Management Institute, they define a program as a way of managing multiple projects in a way that you get more out of them than you could by managing the projects individually. In other words, the whole is more than the sum of the parts. So you need that kind of holistic, ongoing program in order to achieve revitalization and resilience because they're not project-oriented. These are things that in order to get them and keep them, you have to work on them constantly. You can't just say, okay, we're going to spend the next five years getting more resilient or more revitalized, and then at the end of the five years, we can sit back and go focus on something else. Uh, You know, all living systems, whether it's an ecosystem or our own human bodies, are constantly regenerating themselves. That's how they maintain uh, their health. And as soon as you stop regenerating and revitalizing and replacing and reconnecting and repurposing, um, you go downhill. If you're not revitalizing, you're devitalizing. There's no such thing as healthy stasis. So going back to your book, like the second book, like uh, the restoration book, most of the questions were based about public and government project, government funding, because it doesn't mean there was no, to mean that there was no private companies that work in that time during 2008, 2005 period. Because to be honest, there are many projects that like now we can see like like a joint venture between government and private. And I see in the Middle East, there are many government, there are many projects that have been joined by the private sector. Because some private sector start going now to go through the, to go through, you know, that now start going, going sustainable or so and green. It means that more profitable. So do you think also private sector should be involved more or not yet? It's a matter of partnering effectively. Uh, my 2008 book, Rewealth, from McGraw-Hill, had two entire chapters on public-private partnerships. There's one chapter on good ones and another whole chapter on bad ones uh, because it can very much, very easily be done badly. And you know, the, the, to put it simply, the purpose of a public-private partnership is to increase the resources from the private sector and decrease the risk to the public sector. And if you're not transferring risk from the public sector to the private sector, it's not a good partnership. And so that that's one of the defining characteristics of it. And uh, too often they do the exact opposite. They transfer the risk from the private sector to the public sector, and the citizens end up picking up the costs when the private uh, side fails. And that's usually due to political corruption or influence. Uh, but a good public-private partnership is, is really the only way to do resilience and revitalization uh, efforts on the kind of scale that's needed. It's very hard to accomplish either one. Uh, basically, it gets back to the project versus program thing. You know, In order to have a good ongoing program, you really need the public sector 
as a partner. You know, the private sector is good at individual projects, but the public sector is good at weaving it all together. Well, I shouldn't say they're good. Most of them are very bad at it. Uh, but potentially, <laughs> if you're going to weave it all together, you need the public sector involved. And by the way, Ganim, I, I uh, forgot to answer that your last question, which was, is resilience the new sustainability? Um, it is from a standpoint of uh, the amount of attention it's getting these days. Um, it's uh, hopefully not going to be the new sustainability in terms of effectiveness. Uh, you know, resilience efforts are usually grounded in some very real threats, threats to the economy, threats to human health or life, you know, either from storms or, you know, from whatever the threat might be. Um, whereas sustainability was always more of a political dialogue. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole term sustainable development was invented in order to get the anti-environmental business people to, in the same room with, and the real estate developers in the same room with the green tree huggers. So they put in sustainable, and then they said development, and supposedly that would make both happy. And a lot of good things have happened under the name sustainable development, but in actual fact, it's been a failure. You know, we've been working on it for 30 or 40 years now, and the world's in far worse shape now than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So the time has come to move away from simply trying to reduce the new damage we do to the world, because we can't have a better future if all we're doing is slowing down the rate at that which we destroy the world. <laughs> you know, in order to have a better future, we need to restore the existing damage. You know, we need to undo the damage and restore our resources. Uh, and that doesn't come from uh, just doing less damage. Uh, so my question is that uh, sustainable planning, I mean, in building rating system, we have lead, we have different rating system that can somehow ensure that we have a sustainable um, uh, structure. When it comes for sustainable planning, do we need um, a governance system, a governance scheme that we can um, ensure that what we are doing is sustainable planning? You mentioned about the private and uh, public partnership that some it's end up many of them in bad shape. So if we have proper governance, proper system that can ensure that our planning is sustainable, our planning is using the resource that we have it in the right way, we are not depleting our natural resources, we are using it in the right way, economically economical wise, and it is in the same time commercial, uh, applicable, and it can make some profits. Is it, uh, is, there is such a mechanism that we can do? It? Yeah, the, the key thing here is we need to look at development uh, in a full life cycle mode. Up till now, we've mostly focused on the first part of the life cycle, what I call new development, which is, you know, sprawling, you know, making our cities larger, uh, cutting down the forest to make new farms, paving over the farms to make more cities. Uh, you know, that kind of, it, it's a destructive form of development, which you can get away with when there's a very small population on the earth. You know, 5,000 years ago, there's no problem with doing this kind of development, you know, creating new farms and chopping down forests and making our villages larger because there were so few people that we didn't have any significant impact on the planet. But with over 8 billion people now and a fat, still growing population, uh, you know, and the, the world isn't any larger now than it was 5,000 years ago. So there's obvious got to be, obviously has to be limits when you're on a finite planet with a growing population. You can only rely on that mode for just so long. 
And the other mode that we've been monitoring and using up till now has been the middle part, middle part of the life cycle, which is maintenance and conservation, you know, maintaining your built environment and conserving what's left of your natural environment. The last part of the life cycle, restorative development, which is where you revitalize the places you've already developed and restore the natural resources that were damaged along the way. It's there and it's huge, but it's not measured. You look at government uh, reports and it's invisible. All this restorative activity is buried under capital improvement and maintenance and all these other budgets. So it's the healthiest and fastest growing part of our economies, but we can't see it because it's not being reported. So we're, we're blind to that. Uh, I call it re-blindness. Uh, we're blind to the whole restorative end of the uh, life cycle. And as a result, it's Im it's impossible for most governments when they're talking about lead and green and sustainability and certification uh, to make sure that what they're applying it to is restorative, revitalizing, resilient, regenerating projects. So yes, it's, it's nice to have a, a brand new uh, building it, you know, in a sprawl area that's green, if you're going to sprawl and stick a building out in the middle of nowhere on top of some valuable ecosystem, then yeah, put some solar panels on it, make it as green as possible, but it's still destructive. Whereas if you green an existing building and reuse, repurpose, renew uh, that, that existing building, you're keeping all of the embodied carbon that went into the mining of the materials, the manufacture of the materials, the, the transportation of the materials, the construction of the building, all of that is embodied energy that can be uh, retained if you reuse the building. And then if you put lead on top of it, now you're built, now you're restoring a building in a way that's more energy efficient and cleaner. You're not using toxic materials in, in the stuff that you're renovating the building with. You know, that's the ideal is applying the green standards to restorative projects. Can you use new technology such as artificial intelligence for the, you know, for that restoration? And we could embody it in the new structure, like even existing structure, embody that in a way that to be so we can control the energy, we can control the carbon emission there, which can be, I think, more beautiful. Yeah, there's no question uh, that part of greening and the, the if you're reusing a building or repurposing infrastructure, uh, there's a lot of technological uh, opportunities there to uh, integrate the two. You've got to be careful because, like with a historic building. Uh, a lot of historic preservationists will get very religious about what can and can't be done that'll affect the appearance of the building. And they say, well, it didn't originally have a green roof, and it didn't originally have any solar panels, and it didn't originally have uh, triple glazed windows, so therefore you can't do any of that. And you know they, they have to understand that if they want to preserve the building, uh, they also need to be responsible stewards of the planet and uh, make sure it uses the latest technologies for energy efficiency and, and non-toxicity. But there's also technologically uh, tremendous opportunities these days with GIS uh, that most revitalization initiatives uh, in places that wanted to do a more holistic approach to revitalizing their city or their region um, they they knew that they wanted to restore the natural environment, the built environment, socioeconomic environment together in order to really create what I call resilient prosperity, which is revitalization that lasts. And uh, the trouble was that in the past, 
that was just too complex. You know, how do you how do you uh, get a handle on all of your natural assets, your built assets, your socioeconomic assets, um, and manage all of that? In the past, that was pretty much impossible. But now, with there are all kinds of new GIS tools that are enabling people to to map their places in a way that uh, captures not just the assets, but the nature of those assets and even the dynamics of those assets. Are they deteriorating? Are they uh, you know, being maintained properly? Are they uh, restored? Are they being restored? All of those sorts of things. So now it's much easier to take this more comprehensive approach, thanks to technology. Uh, so uh, w- w- what I can say, uh, since from your talk, that um, y- you can see that sustainability is more about being a value than a KPI. Um, unfortunately, in construction, it's a very fragmented uh, sector, you know, and many of the p- uh, different players in this sector they see sustainability in general um, as a KPI. So since construction now, they are, I believe me and Atav, it's entering a new era with new technology. How we can embed this new mindset of uh, sustainable planning, especially for construction um, that would serve um, the all stakeholders who really care about sustainable uh, planning and sustainable cities. Right. Yeah, I was. Uh, I spent almost six years as the director of strategic initiatives at the Construction Specifications Institute, uh, based here in the Washington, D.C. area, which is uh, back when I was involved with it. It was a technical society of about 17,000 architects, engineers, uh, product manufacturers, and just focused on formatting specifications and creating specifications uh, for uh, construction of all kinds. And uh, yeah, the construction industry is highly fragmented and uh, there are a lot of people who are locked into a certain way of doing things because that's that's how they know how to do it efficiently. So they're not the kinds of people you normally want to look to for, for uh, adopting the latest principles. What I found was far more effective was going to the owners and uh, finding ways to motivate the owners to put the better uh, designs, the better technologies, the better materials into the specifications, uh, you know, either in the RFP or RFQ, and uh, and just say, look, here's the standard you have to live up to. Uh, in most cases, they don't even have to put in the prescriptive specifications, just performance specifications are sufficient. And uh, if they put in the right performance specifications, and these construction companies want to get that contract, you know, that it pretty much forces them to adopt uh, all the latest uh, green techniques. It's either that or going out, go out of business. How should we educate the public or the owners that about the sustainability, I'm, I'm, the core of the value of the sustainability planning, you know? Um, is it uh, through the government, through the policy? I mean, this general awareness, the collective awareness toward the sustainability, you know? I know it is a learning curve, but how we can um, uh, encourage people to go towards these things? Because, you know, usually the public, the first thing will come as we discuss about the cost. So then we need to talk about the holistic, the life cycle, how we should uh, initiate this. Yeah, it usually has to start from the public sector um, because, you know, that, that's where the, the welfare of the public <laughs> uh, is supposed to be embodied. And the thing is that if it starts there and companies get more familiar with and more expert at delivering things in a green or restorative way, 
then they then they adopt that into their own culture and they can start marketing themselves as green or restorative experts. Uh, but they have to have that initial impetus. And for instance, uh, I I live across the river from Washington D.C. in Arlington County, Virginia, and Arlington County was the first county in the United States to require that all new public buildings be LEED certified. And this was like 25, 30 years ago. And once they did it, then cities and counties all across the United States started doing it. You know, you just needed some brave public figures to to be the first. And uh, so that it, it usually involves not trying to change everybody at the same time, but finding one or two champions who can set the way and, you know, set an example for others. And it's like when companies roll out a new product, you know, they, um, they'll they usually go after the, the high-end sector first, you know, like Tesla. You know, they initially started off with an expensive car and their goal all along was after they got production ramped up, they'd go with a, a mid-price car. And when production got higher, they'd go with a lower price car. And it's the same thing. It's the early adopter syndrome where um, uh, the, you get uh, communities with uh, uh, responsible leaders, uh, courageous leaders uh, who are in a very small percentage. And they'll see somebody like Arlington County requiring all new buildings to be LEED certified. And uh, so you'll get that one or two or three percent of early adopters in other cities to do it. And once you get, say, five percent of them doing it, then the next level, people who weren't quite as courageous, uh, they'll jump in and say, well, if five percent are doing it, I'll jump in too. And little by little in tears, uh, you get everybody on involved. So it's a matter of biting off what you can chew. Yeah, and maybe this is good advice for the people who want to work as entrepreneur in this area, especially for Gen Z. I mean that uh, because usually the young guys, uh, you know, they they have they can take this uh, risk and they can gamble, you know. So um, as you said, it is the whole ecosystem, and maybe entrepreneurship they can uh, move this wheel ahead in the beginning. Yeah, it's a matter of finding. It's not just a matter of courage. You have to find the right place at the right time. Uh, you have to find a place that's motivated for some reason to do things in a different way. Uh, oftentimes that comes after a disaster. You'll find people who are... Uh, uh, and, and another key thing is you don't want to separate resilience from revitalization. Uh, at Reconomics Institute, you know, Reconomics.org, uh, if you look at the logo there, it's the Society of Revitalization and Resilience Professionals. You put the two together in order to get resilient prosperity. If you try to do resilience, you're not going to, all by itself, you're not going to get enough money. People tend to invest in improving the real estate values. That's how they make their money, is buying real estate and then selling it later when it's more valuable. So that's where the revitalization comes in. But if you do revitalization without resilience, mm -hmm. then people aren't going to have the confidence to in to invest in your city because it might all blow away in the next storm. So you do revitalization and resilience together and you get the economic benefits that attracts investors and you also uh, get the confidence in the future from the resilience that attracts even more investors. So that's why post-disaster situations are really good places to find uh, uh, leaders who are looking to do things in a different way and who often have a lot of money available for reconstruction in order to fund those new projects. 
So, so, so a question now these days in construction, like me and Atif, we talk in one of the episodes about many people talk about circular economy, hydrogen economy, and all these new kind of alternative energy economy. How you see it, you know, um, in terms of like zero waste ma- management, how you see it as from sustainable aspect? Do you think it is um, a good st- a start in like, especially in construction to consider circular economy, hydrogen economy, these things, it will help eventually to reach there uh, to, uh, as you mentioned in your book, to that point that we have a real sustainability tangible between private and public and all the stakeholders. Yeah, uh, the circular economy movement is, is very positive because it brings together the best of all the old sustainability stuff, you know, the recycling and all that, the reuse, uh, but it combines it with regeneration. You know, regeneration is at the heart of the circular economy thing, which is why it's different from the usual sustainability. Uh, so it's basically, um, you know, a, a bringing together of the trend that I documented in my first book, this whole ro- move towards repurposing, renewing, reconnecting the world, uh, together with green technologies and green approaches and recycling and all of that. So it doesn't really... It, it's a new dialogue, but it really is just the combination of two older dialogues. So what we can take about the, the three book, how we can do it like, you know, because as I see this book are as like an older or division from the new Bill Gates book, how to tackle the climate change. So what we can, how we, how this book can be tackled from Bill Gates new gen about how to tackle climate change can be combined together or they are a very version from Bill Gates new book. Yeah. Um, Actually, hang on a second. Yeah, so (laughs) uh, Bill Gates' office just sent this to me a couple of days ago. Um, You know, they they contacted me about uh, two weeks ago and asked me if I wanted a copy. And uh, so it just arrived. I haven't read it yet. Uh, But (laughs) the the key thing here is if you're, it doesn't matter whether they're calling it circular economy or or what, uh, if they're talking about just slowing down the rate of destruction, then it's the old paradigm. So for instance, if they're talking about reducing their carbon footprint, if they're talking about carbon neutral or zero carbon, that's the old way of thinking. You know, it's, uh, that, that's what we should have been doing for the last 50 years, but we didn't. Uh, and now the crisis has reached a point where the only thing that really counts I mean, those other things are good, reducing carbon footprint, zero carbon, all that. Those are good. If you're not, if you're not going to do the right thing, then at least do that. Um, but uh, the right thing is carbon negative. Uh, we've got to be restoring the climate. So the focus has to be on restoring the climate, has to be on sequestering carbon, not just from reducing new carbon. And uh, so that's, that's the key to the refocus. So really, thank you, Mr. Mark. So any final thoughts from you? Well, uh, when you were asking about uh, the books and the how do you, how do we really address this in an effective way, um, what I talked about in the new book, Reconomics, is that the key missing element that stops these revitalization and resilience initiatives from succeeding is the lack of process. Uh, I mean, you guys are engineers. Uh, you, you know that in order to build a bridge, uh, drill a tunnel, uh, you know, create any kind of infrastructure, whether it's power or sewer or water, you know, whatever, 
You have to have a process. If you're going to reliably produce a bridge, there has to be a bi- bridge building process. Uh, and every business person knows this. They know if whether they're creating peanut butter or trousers or uh, you know uh, wh- whatever. You know, to reliably produce anything, you have to have a process. The only people who don't seem to understand that are the people who are running cities and regions and countries. Uh, there, it all falls apart and becomes just this stop, start, stop, start, project by project approach. And if you ask them, okay, you've said you, you're going to create resilience or you said you're going to create revitalization. What's your process for successfully delivering that? And they'll say, okay, well, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And I say, no, those are activities. What's the process that's pulling all of that together to make sure the end result is achieved? And they'll just look at me blankly. They've got no idea what a process is. So that's what I've documented in the new books, Reconomics, is what I call a minimum viable process for achieving revitalization and resilience. It's minimum viable because... You can't take away from it. Every every one of the six elements are essential, but you can add to it if you need to. So you can customize it according to your lo- your local needs. So oh, thank you really, Mr. Stom. Really appreciate that. I know that we don't want to make it. We want we have one more question about, but we want. I know we are you are a busy guy, so we don't want to make it long long enough for you. Thank you and wishing you the best. Oh, thank you. Good to meet you too. Wow, what a great episode. After the show, we talk about how. Circular economy is a new type of sustainability where you have to refurnish new structure and new thing. From my perspective, yeah, if you start to educate people about recyclable and circular economy and how to refurnish existing area and to be it more sustainable, we will have less green emission, so we will meet the goals of the UN 2030 UN goals. 17 goals of the UN. We always talk at that in the show about the UN goals, about sustainability goals, the 2030 UN sustainability goal. We'll watch the, show, the link of the show about this uh, UN sustainability goal. So, guys, tell you think of what you think about this guest. Do you think can we bring him again? And also, guys, leave us a review in Apple or Podchaser. That will help us a lot. Thank you, guys. Wishing you the best. Take care. Bye. It was nice to meet you and the member guy. We raised by sharing the knowledge to everyone. Sharing is caring. It was nice to meet you guys and wishing you the best. Take care guys and wishing you the best. You guys have a good, good day and good night. Thank you.